Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. And with me, of course, as ever, is Dominic Sandbrook. And Dominic, you remember in the episode we did on Valentine's Day? Remember it well, Tom. Uh, you, you, of course, bring this amazing expertise on the post office. And you talked about how, <laughs> the, about how the invention of basically of the kind of, you know, the, uh, the penny post revolutionized the, um, yeah. uh, the, the sending of Valentine cards because everyone could send them anonymously and all that. Exactly. Kind of stuff. That and the pillar box, two great yes. inventions that are underestimated. Well, it, it, it set me thinking, um, which, of course, you do all the time. But this this oh, really set me kind. thinking that, that in, in so in central London, just I, I think five minutes walk north of maybe 10 minutes walk north of St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, there's a statue of Roland Hill. Postal reformer, the father of the Penny Post. Absolutely. And it marks a spot where there was the it was the, the main post office in Victorian times, so the mid 19th century. And next door to it, there's this very sweet, very kind of discreet park called Postman's Park. And obviously, and I, I looked up to check this, it's because all the postmen went there to have a kind okay. of, you know, a rest yeah. after they'd, I, I they'd mean, done I'm their rounds. To, and I'm things. keen to hear where this is going, Tom. But, okay, uh, I'll, tell you where, I'll tell you where it's going. So, But the best thing about um, Postman's Park is the fact that in 1900, the, um, the artist George Frederick Watts, you know, who yes. did kind of great yeah. Victorian, slight, you know, uh, canvases he did burning burning summer i think was it yeah he did but he was very kind of slightly sort of post pre-raphaelite kind of very lush kind of stuff and kind of huge metal statues i think he's got a bronze in hyde park anyway he he set up this wonderful thing that was a memorial to heroic self-sacrifice and they are a kind of little uh, well they're, they're little memorials that are on the side of the wall um commemorating people who sacrificed themselves saving fellow citizens Okay, in, in Victorian London, and the f- the very first one to appear, the f- the first one to be mentioned, uh, is Sarah Smith, pantomime artiste at the Prince's Theatre, died of terrible injuries received when attempting in her inflammable dress to extinguish the flames which had enveloped her companion, January the twenty fourth, eighteen sixty three. And the reason that this particularly sticks in my memory is that I, I saw this and was very, very struck by it. And I mentioned it to my younger daughter, Eliza, who you, you know well. Yeah, I do. Um, and she said, oh, well, in that case, you must read this amazing book I've got. And she has this incredible library of books about fashion. And this book, she said, it was absolutely her favorite book. Um, and it was called Fashion Victims, The Dangers of Dress, Past and Present by Alison Matthews David. And she pressed it on me. And I have to say that her commendation was entirely merited because it is a brilliant book. Well, so um, I've got a great surprise for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you'll be absolutely astounded to, to find that we have with us right now Alison Matthews David. No. Who's joining us from <laughs> Toronto in Canada. I think our first Canadian guest on the – well, our first Canadian-based guest. We've had Canadians before, Andrew Preston, of course. But um, Alison, uh, Tom has been banging on about your book for, I would say, about – 18 months uh, he's very excited about it as am i because it is a brilliant book it's about killer fashion basically isn't it what 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 brought you to this this sort of strange subject 
Well, um, I suppose I've been a fashion or dress and textiles historian for about 20 years. And actually, uh, I have been to Postman's Park and I've seen that plaque. It's quite, it's very moving. Um, But the story does start in the UK because I started my academic career at the uh, Winchester School of Art. um, And we took field trips up to Manchester. And that's where I really, the the scale of how much harm the textile and fashion industry had done to the people who worked in it and wore it really hit me because uh, that's where I first saw sort of the cotton machinery um, that, you know, children would get trapped in, um, would deafen the workers, you know, tuberculosis transmitted through shuttles. So really that kind of the harm caused by the mills really um, inspired me to look more deeply into all of these uh, harmful things that harmed health through fashion. Yeah. And and so you, you wrote this incredible book, Fashion Victims, which is absolutely lavishly illustrated, as well as being full of, I mean, literally killer facts. Um, so I, we, we should just say you've, you, you're now a professor in the School of Fashion at Ryerson University in Toronto. You've, you, you're working on a, a second book, which sounds equally brilliant, has an equally brilliant title, The Fabric of Crime. Uh, and you, you've got a you've got a show coming out, uh, um, Exhibit A, Investigating Crime and Footwear which is opening at the Battersea Museum in Toronto. So um, very disappointing for people in Britain that we won't be able to get to see it. But um, Perhaps it will travel. <laughs> well, let's hope, let's hope. But, but the fabric, so, so you, you, you're obviously brilliant at, at your titles, but let's for the moment stick to, to fashion victims. And if we could just continue to look at um, the idea of tutus as as killers. I mean, I, Alison, we should say that we've just done a, um, an episode about the 10 worst parties in which actually... Oh, no. um, the tutu does feature uh we we featured one of them um a, a, a very formal dinner uh in a hunting lodge in the black forest attended by the kaiser in i think 1910 when the head of the german staff wandered out dressed up in a tutu came back in did some pirouettes and then had a heart attack um so that in well, a sense a i suppose I don't, I don't think it's fair to say that the tutu killed him though tom i mean well, I, yes well. well in a manner of speaking but that's not what we're talking about here is it we're talking about the fact that I mean, you have this amazing statistic, 10,000 deaths worldwide from theatre fires between 1797 and 1897, of which most were were dancers. So what's going on there? Ooh, it's a complex story, but um, certainly an important one, I think. Um, and it's tied to so many, so many things, literally, um, including the fact, uh, again, to go back to the kind of industrial uh, production, one of the things was that tool, you know, the kind of the, that net fiber that we associate with the tutu could first be mass produced in 1808. John Heathcote invented a machine to to weave as one of the complex, most complex textile machines that have ever been invented. But it was a mechanical way of of um, of weaving tool. And so this luxury fabric had that was then you know, for the rest of the 19th century became an incredibly important, both a fashion fabric for net dresses, it was called bobinet, um, but also for dancers, because um, uh, this light fabric in combination with the lighting um, created this diaphanous, beautiful, you know, uh, kind of figure of the romantic ballerina, um, whose legs were who could, you know, dance en pointe, which was, you know, the first time that this, this was happening um, in her light tulle tutu um, and, you know, layers of, of, um, of different kind of petticoats. Um, and she created this sort of enchanting um, figure wafting around the stage. Um, but of course, these same materials in the same form of lighting. Um, also, unfortunately, you know, these, these tutus were starched, um, you know, they were open weave. Uh, you can imagine and in common 
combination with gaslighting created uh, an incredible yeah. fire hazard on stage. And people knew it. That's the, that, that, you see, that to me is one of the amazing things about your book, is that it's not just about you know us retrospectively saying, oh, I mean, there are some cases of that, saying, oh, actually, these things killed you. But at the time, so The Lancet, there's an article in 1868, The Holocaust of Ballet Girls. Ballet Girls themselves knew that there was a very, I mean, it's not a very strong possibility, but there is a possibility, but they do it anyway. I mean, I suppose it's that just because they feel they have no choice. Um, the theatres are refusing to flame-proof themselves or or whatever. I mean, what's the story? Yeah, the, it's it's a complex story, and it does it does relate strongly to occupational dress in a way that we, we don't think of dance costumes or theatre costumes as occupational dress. But in order to create your character or your, to be a dancer, you need to wear a costume that has a certain allure. And whether or not that allure is, is physically dangerous, and, and certainly theatres were not wonderful or, or uniform in, in having, you know, sort of any kind of flame-proofing, fireproofing, even water buckets to put out flames, um, you know. So it, it was an inherently, and people were, you know, the audience members were also throwing cigars on the floor and things like that like that. So, um, you know, there was just not uh, the same concern with with safety um, at the time and safety for the workers, because these uh, most of the, you know, the ballerinas came from working class backgrounds. And of course, you probably know in Paris, they were even called rats, the little rats. Les rats. Um, so, you know, they really often came, they were workers with their bodies, right? And so they, they came from the working class for the most part. Um, and, you know, a lot of the descriptions of them are in kind of, you know, dingy tool, but still that was what they were expected to wear. And I, I think that's a, um, and they kind of often took on the risks of that knowingly, um, because that was how they earned their their daily bread, I suppose. Um, and uh, they were, yeah, it's amazing throughout this study how much was actually known about the hazards that we, you know, we, we <laughs> that were, they, people were, were um, exposed to, but, um, and they did try to uh, fireproof fabrics. There's a huge history in there of sort of how fire, how fabrics um, were, how people attempted to, to fireproof them. But, um, Gender is also a very important consideration because men's clothing was inherently, if you're wearing a woolen suit, um, it's inherently flame-proofed and it kind of fits your body. Whereas women's dress in the Victorian era, as you can all vision, envision and kind of imagine, um, especially dress that was worn for, yeah, again, dance or evening dress was often very gauzy, very layered, um, loose from the body, you know, crinolines, we can get into that, but, you know, it wasn't fitted to the body. It was made of these light fabrics that were often incredibly flammable. So, um, yeah. Well, so, so, Alison, you mentioned crinolines. So again, mm -hmm. the, the, the Lancet seems to be quite hot on this. So again, I mean, it, 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 in 1860, it described the wearing of women who were wearing crinolines. It described, again, that this is causing a holocaust. So you know, this is long, obviously, before the, 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 the Shoah. This is referring to, you know, burnt offerings. Uh, and what is it about crinolines that are they're so dangerous. Ah, uh, yes. I mean, I was actually shocked to find those articles called The Holocaust of Ballet Girls or The Crinoline because I didn't know that it came from the to be to meant to be burnt whole and so that but it was a word that came up in the 19th century press a lot in relation to these fire deaths um but the crinoline was also a culprit um the crinoline also called a skeleton petticoat ironically perhaps but um or the hoop skirt as we know it more in the north america but the crinoline um was a device that was a skirt supporter um and you know many people may be familiar with it but what was 
knew about it, I suppose, was that it was made from steel hoops. Um, so it used steel technology in the 1850s um, and replaced layers of really heavy, you know, horse hair, horse hair petticoats that dragged around. And so on the one hand, the crinoline was fantastic. Or a lot of women loved, you know, you had to have a bell shaped skirt. You had to, you know, show off all the textiles you had and all your lace and all your trimmings. And um, also because but, men couldn't reach over and molest them, right? You could just kind of physically repel right. them. <laughs> exactly. They, it, it was, I mean, there were, it was amazing to me with the pandemic, how many people tested the crinoline as a kind of <laughs> right. social distancing measure, actually. Um, a lot of people went out in public with them and kind of, you know, just to keep people away. Um, and that. so they would have done that in a, in a world where women were, you know, touched and molested and things like that. It was a natural space, uh, you know, women claimed their space, which made it very unpopular um, for men um, and in the caricatures. But um, I mean, I'm always torn. And uh, women did find it, it was, because it was light steel, you know, attached with, to by tapes. It was actually apparently much more comfortable to walk in. It wasn't as heavy. So it did have a lot of pluses. But one of the biggest dangers, and I think one that gets, as I think, increasingly on this got picked up on by the press and the caricaturists was that it was a and, and the lancet and the medical experts was that it was a fire hazard and indeed it, it actually was because you know if you think about it people compared it to a a, a chimney flue um you know so it would just the air would whoosh under right, it you yeah. know if even a spark caught it the air would um you know whoosh under it and and you know kind of blaze up and so there were actually and it was worn across the social spectrum like in the past this is the thing that's different from the tutus right because the people yes. wearing the tutus are working class girls who feel they have no choice but to go on the stage and a ballet being a ballet dancer is your route up but some of the victims with the crinolines the archduchess of austria archduchess mm -hmm. matilde is it oscar wilde's sisters who die at a ball uh, one of them goes past the fire place i think it is and catches exactly. fire and then the other one tries to to put her out i mean these are so that's the difference these are high these are upper class i mean certainly in the case of the archduchess of austria the very highest class in yeah, the land you don't get higher than that but still but still um it goes on that's the extraordinary thing exactly because you know you know we think that as an upper class or middle middle or upper class woman you might have a choice to wear something yeah. a little bit more except that the social pressure to conform to fashion was such that I would argue that they didn't particularly have a choice either. Right. Um, and so, I mean, again, it's interesting too that the Archduchess Matilda was, you know, again, the young, young woman, apparently she was hiding a cigarette from her behind her back. Oh, <laughs> she was right, smoking. Right. Um, and the public, the press records say, oh, she stepped on a match. <laughs> they didn't want to say that she had been smoking. So, um, you know, this fast behavior, I suppose. But um, everyone, when I read reports, everyone from, yes, the Archduchess to cooks were wearing it. You know, imagine wearing a, a these, or a maid who had been cleaning the fire grate had her crinoline, cat, her, her skirts catch on fire. So crinolines, therefore, weren't intrinsically expensive. Um, no, no. Okay. Most women owned about two of them, um, even at the low, in, in the lower classes. And it wasn't really the only women who didn't wear them were, you know, hopeless, like the Pre-Raphaelites, the, the, you know, the right. Bohemians or the artists. And so to, or, you know, so really you were expected to wear them. And uh, Alison, it's, it's a bit like um, uh, the, the, the tutus in that you have this new kind of style of fabric. That, that makes the tutu possible. Isn't also the same with the crinoline, that it's a, a kind of new light kind of metal that makes it possible. And you have the, again... The, I believe it's the Bessemer steel process that's used for it to spin 
Yeah, to spin. It's an, it's exactly it's new technology feeding into fashion. And then, you know, who's making the profit from it again? And, and then who's satirizing it? I think it's a very interesting, you know, it's like, oh, these silly women, how dare they wear these things? And it's like, well, who is profiting from this? And who's inventing these things? Peugeot, so, right? I mean, Peugeot, they have an entire factory. Yeah, the Peugeot factory them. known for their cars now in, opened an entire new factory just to make um, steel cage crinoline hoops. And just just one last on the on the subject of skirts, before we move on mm. to um, <laughs> another way of killing yourself with items of clothing, the hobble skirt. Yes, which, oh, Tom, <laughs> love, Tom loves this story. I, I love it. I love a good hobble skirt. So tell us how to, tell us how hobble skirts. Well, first of all, what is a hobble skirt? I mean, it's kind of self descriptive, isn't it? But but and how do they come into being? The fashion. The origins of certain items are complex, but I I like one of the versions of this is that in the early twentieth century. I mean, we associate. Again, with skirts, we associate, you know, women starting to wear trousers and, you know, the dress reform movement and, you know, women's suffrage movements and things like that. And so this sort of liberation um, and dress for women does become more functional, um, except that it's never a linear progression to, you know, the mobile flapper. Um, so around 1908 to 1910, a new kind of very tightly fitting ankle length skirt comes into fashion um, called the hobble skirt. And if you want to picture what the hobble skirt looks like, you have merely to imagine the Coke bottle, um, which is also called the hobble skirt bottle, the traditional kind of, um, and you can see how that's cinched in and at the at the ankles. Um, and so they were skirts that were the opposite of the crinoline, really. Um, they were incredibly narrow in diameter and you had to hobble. I mean, it hobbled women. Um, you had to, you know, you, there were, there were, postcards mocking them saying I can't kick because the other thing of course you'd hobble would be horses or mules um, and so um, and, and enslaved peoples so you know it had negative connotations but um, but it became a huge fashion um, and one of the I have found a great picture of Mrs. Edith Berg who was the publicist for the Wright brothers with her skirts she was the first female passenger on an airplane in 19 in the I think it was 1908 or 9 and she had to, of course, it, the plane was open, so she had to tie her skirt um, with ropes to prevent it from flapping up when she was on in the air as a passenger, um, you know, for modesty and probably practical reasons as well. And one uh, legend sort of says, well, you know, um, I saw the woman get off the plane and she hobbled and I thought that was very attractive. Um, one of the famous French fashion designers, Paul Poiret, says, you know, I freed the bust from the from you know the corset which is a whole other story but i shackled the legs so he claims that he invented this hobble skirt i take it with a grain of salt but um but the result was that you know there are all sorts of again caricatures of women hopping to catch the train and actual incidents of women you know um breaking ankles getting off the streetcar and things like that or you know trying to be mobile in the city in these hobble skirts was a real challenge so the hobble skirts don't kill you but they'll break your ankle is that basically the story well one woman did fall into a lock and then couldn't swim so she drowned um another woman couldn't escape a wild horse ironically from a race course and you know she was she died with the horse running her over um so you know no there weren't a huge there weren't as many you know actual documented deaths but i think um i think it's a kind of interesting example of you know plus ça change (laughs) you know the hazard can be from either something too tight or too loose um but women are often as wearers are often subject to more dangers so so on that topic i do you think that um it it can be an important aspect of fashion precisely that it is uncomfortable and dangerous and awkward and i guess the the really the, the the classic item of footwear that is always cited as the illustration of that is shoes well, it's um, the only item of footwear there is, Tom. 
Yeah, you're right. Shoe. Of course. Yeah, sorry. Yes, 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 yes. There's the boots. Well, no, boots as well. I see boots as a subset of shoes, frankly. Yeah, you're right. Of course. Sorry. I meant clothing. Um, that, that, that shoes are, uh, well, well, feet. So, so high heels, all that kind of stuff. And it's not just women, is it? Let me just say this, Tom. I've been looking forward to saying this. The other week, listen, some listeners may know that we did a walk around London, a historical walk. And you knew perfectly well that I had to go to a function that evening <laughs> and was very smartly dressed. And I actually still have deep scars on both ankles because I was wearing, as Tom knows, I hate the fact that he's laughing so gleefully at this. <laughs> I was wearing a, a pair of new boots and the bloody walk would never end. Well, you and- suffered to look beautiful, whereas I was wearing sensible walking boots. <laughs> you so were, you I, I, I did beautiful. it. But I, I mean, I look terrible, but I, I don't have blisters. Regular listeners but you will look have great, seen the photos. But- and they, what they won't know is that I was concealing enormous, <laughs> I was dealing with enormous pain. As the blood dripped, seeped, exactly. out, of the, exactly. seeped out through the letter. Um, so the Middle Ages, you know, you have these kind of very, very notoriously long kind of... Um, Poulen. Uh, yes, which the church is always formulating it. But I suppose the most notorious... Uh, example of this is foot binding in china or is it not is that a kind of a western myth or did that really happen what's the kind of story behind that oh it's so it's such an interesting story and again i keep stressing that they're complex stories it's not just sort of like people from you know women from asia were binding their feet um european men and women were also actually we found out when we were doing research for the exhibition that we did called fashion victims at the bada that um i mean we looked at these incredibly narrow-souled um, European shoes as well. And, um, you know, they were so narrow and they had wear on the soles. So they must have been worn. Um, but we, we were trying to sort of imagine and, and boots stylish. Again, it had, it was class related. If you, you, a narrow foot was considered elegant, a tiny foot for both men and women. And so we were trying to think, you know, how did this happen? Um, and we looked into things like, um, chiropodists, uh, manuals and it was talking about how people would actually you know, European men and women would literally bind their toes, you know, and kind of stack them on each other just to get into these shoes and keep them bound. So I think there was a lot of foot pain historically in Europe. But um, the, the example of China, um, which was used as a comparison uh, often, especially um, as missionaries going um, into Asian places where this, uh, like into Asia, were trying to ban it and trying to, you know, but were also fascinated by it. That practice was um, the the curator of the Badashi Museum, I think, gives a good analogy. It was sort of something like orthodontics. It was like trying to cr- to actually change the bone structure, but in the aim of beautifying and kind of helping your child move up the social classes. So mothers actually um, from starting, I believe, at the age of six would would bind their their children's feet. And it wasn't just an upper class practice, but, um, you know, it was only in certain regions of China. Um, they would bind the feet and pull bands around it so that the, the toes would sort of fold under. Um, and you would create this very small and attractive, what was called a lotus foot. Um, and so this, you know, and, and certainly women could walk. I mean, that's the kind of the legend that is that, you know, no people couldn't walk like this. I mean, it's certainly, there, there's lots of good literature on it, I think, but, um, and and women would embroider these beautiful slippers to wear with these feet to kind of show them off. Um, but certainly, I mean, it's a practice uh, that that was just like the binding of toes in in European society. It was meant to show how elite you were. And of course, the less mobile you are, the more elite you are. Right? You don't have to walk right. and um, and perform labor. And so 
um, you know, this is conspicuous display as Thorstein Veblen would, or he coined the term conspicuous consumption, but there's also conspicuous display. And a lot of his work talks about how the more you can display your white shirt front or any, any you know, your clean cuffs um, and collar, it shows, you know, how little work you have to do or your, your, your uh, harm, the dress that you don't have to move in, you know. <laughs> the obvious thing that I think will have occurred to a lot of listeners is um, we listen to that about the foot binding and we kind of shudder and say how, how crazy um, in our sort of sort of condescending way. But of course, I mean, lots of listeners, maybe while they're listening to this podcast, are wearing very impractical high heels. I don't know how many high-heeled listeners, how many people put on their high heels to listen to our podcast. But anyway, you know, <laughs> do you think, um, uh, do you see them as being on the same sort of continuum in a way as kind of foot binding, trying to shape the foot, trying to create an impression, but also something that, frankly, to me as a non-high-heel wearer, looks well, kind never. of... Never, Tom. Never. Oh, never even tried it. Um, looks kind of crazy. I mean, my wife mm. always, when she wears high heels, says, I- I'm in agony. <laughs> um, I mean, do you think future generations will look back on that with as much sort of stupefaction as, as we look back on our predecessors? Well, I think it's particularly in the context of the pandemic where we've ditched a lot of uncomfortable things um, and constraining things, including my, I don't think I've worn a pair of heels since the, since it started. Um, I think dress has become much more casual, comfortable. We, we have had an emphasis on comfort that, that wasn't there in, in past eras and, and other cultures. Like it just, um, it's, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think maybe, I mean, on the one hand, one could say, oh my goodness, this seems even more shocking, you know, now to us as, as we have this comfortable dress. Um, but I think we, I think it's best not to kind of judge, um, because we all know the sensation of, you know, having something fashionable and that's what was fashionable. That was, was what was stylish. That's what made people feel also good at the time. So about their appearance. Isn't there always a slight cachet? If people suffer for their fashion, it becomes more valuable. Do you not, do you think, I mean, do you think there's a sort of, I mean, cause there's also this kind of slight pleasure pain thing going on a little bit, isn't there? Certainly the sort of the fetishization of high heels is part of that. The fact that they're painful is part of the pleasure. And I suppose ditto with corsets. Yeah, with corsets. Exactly. Too. I think, I mean, that's incorporate. I mean, again, especially for us, I think that's how we make that distinction. Um, some people feel more comfortable in, com- in corsets too, though. They feel structured, they feel supported. Um, so my PhD student who wrote her thesis on corsets, she did her defense in a corset and she's, you know, she, she gives conference presentations in corsets because they make her feel um, supported and, yeah. and comfortable. She calls them a hug. So, you know, it's, it's sort of all relative, I think, to um, now to what you're comfortable with. Whereas in the, in the past, I mean, not everyone was tight lacing their corsets or, you know, um, necessarily squeezing themselves into those shoes. Although if you wanted to present a fashionable fas- facade, you had to. So um, I don't know. I don't have a... I, I guess it's part of our myth about fashion, I think, you know. With, with heels, I mean, it raises you. Mm-hmm. So there's there's this amazing uh, vase uh, kind of pot from um, Persia, about I think about 800 BC, 900 BC. Um, and it has two feet and the, the, it has kind of, you know, two legs coming off the, the bottom of the vase. So you stand it on the, on, on the legs and the feet have high heels. Mm-hmm. And... Dominic, you remember we we did an episode on Persia with Alan yes. Zari talking and he about how that the everything said it invented high heels. Well, specifically platform exactly. platform shoes, uh, obviously, and the kings wear them. 
to to make them taller, to to make them tower over the rest of the courtiers, and I, you know, that seems to be a, a feature of of kind of courtly life in in many different in, cultures. Many uh, different Nicolas, Nicolas Sarkozy wore high heels. <laughs> yes, he did. He did. <laughs> yes, my yes. my <laughs> co-investigator Elizabeth um, Semelhack <laughs> says, you know, cowboys wear heels, but we don't call them. We don't think yeah, of them as wearing yeah, high right. heels, but they yeah. do. Yeah. Um, you know, they're the kind of epitome of masculinity, but. Um, she was the. She did a lot of research on Persian footwear, and it's interesting because yes, they were something that um, you know uh, the British. It was a military fashion to keep your foot in the stirrup, and so it, it you know it's it was adopted in the UK first by men, um, and only thirty years later, women you know yeah it was a power symbol. Women appropriated it, and they they thought you know they wanted to be like these men in heels. So it's become very gendered, feminine, but it depends on you know if you. Yeah, think of Sarkozy. If you think of, um, you know, if you think of, um, you All know, French cowboy presidents, or, I think, wow, I exactly. Um, then, yeah, I mean, heels are more, um, yeah, well, glam rock stars, than you might I think. guess. Exactly. Yes, Elton John. Yeah, Elton. <laughs> uh, so, I, I, but I suppose something else that makes you look tall, if you're a man, is a is a top hat. Uh, yes. Or, or you know, or any kind of hat, uh, hatwear, headwear. God, I'm getting my wares all over the place. <laughs> um, and just, but, but before we come to the break. In a way, I, I mean, one of the most extraordinary stories of the lot that you tell in, in Fashion Victims is the story of the hat and how these are lethally dangerous. And I had, I mean, until I read your book, I had no idea just how dangerous they are. Although, of course, I should have done. The Mad, because the mad Hatter. The Mad Hatter, in, yes, in Lewis Carroll, of course. I, I, again, I hadn't thought why hatters are mad. Just tell us what the hell's going on with hats. <laughs> because oh, hats. it's a very weird story. <laughs> I love hats. Um, <laughs> uh, well, we so should say, we should tell the listeners that you actually have a hat with you that because we I were do. talking about how Dan Jackson wore his capitalist hat. A magnificent look. That is it's, a good hat. It's a very good hat. I have a very nice hat made for me by the Saucy Milliner in oh. Ottawa. Um, shout out so, to the Saucy Milliner. A shout out to to her, and um, she told me it had magic properties. So I'm I, and I'm assuming it's non toxic, which is yes. Yeah, so it doesn't kill you. Um, would be one it, magic property. Exactly. It has. It, I, I don't know. Peacock feathers were used in its its making here, apparently. But uh, but apart, I don't. I hope the peacock wasn't harmed. Who knows? <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but I wore it for my book launch actually. So that was a special top hat book launch uh, extravaganza. Um, <laughs> but I, I have always been fascinated with hats. I have my grandfather's top hat from the 1930s, and um, it's a silk top hat. So I think it's all right. But I, in fact, what I realized doing this research, you know, we we think of the silk topper. Uh, I think it was actually meant to be no, nothing talks about this, but I think it was actually meant to be a kind of a non toxic alternative to the traditional fur felt hat, the beaver or rabbit fur felt hat. And the other little tidbit, I guess, I would have that that came out of this research was. Um, understanding that, you know, animals, basically they say, um, you know, any animal that walked by a hatter was in danger <laughs> of its life. <laughs> right. um, so all sorts of different animals were used to make um, hat felt. So this material for these these hats that were fashionable from the medieval period to the 1960s, when they, that's the only time that the whole mercury um, in, issue um, stopped because hats went out of fashion. Um, so, you know, centuries of, of mercury were used to create, um, well, not were used to create 
uh, the hats that adorned the heads mostly of men, not exclusively, but mostly. Um, and men didn't leave the house without, just as a woman wouldn't leave the house without her, you know, her crinoline or <laughs> what she needed in that period, a man would not leave the house without his hat. Um, and so, and certainly a fur felt hat was a, originally a luxury. It was made of beaver fur. And just to interrupt a second, the mercury, the point of the mercury is what? That it softens the fur, basically. Is is that it, effectively? Ah, yes. Well, you know, hat making was a very complex trade. You had to go through many operations to turn this sort of uh, pelt that you would start with into a lovely, lustrous, waterproof, beautiful hat. Um, and if you were doing that with beaver, beaver had a natural felting ability. It was wonderful. But when you start to run out of beaver in the 18th century for various reasons, I mean, it had been killed off in Europe, um, you know, by the Renaissance. And then uh, so people turned to that huge, you know, people know about the fur trade. It was all in service of mostly men's European men's hats. Um, they start to run out of beaver supplies um, in the 18th century, and they need to turn to more locally available and cheaper hats or cheaper fur, which meant hair and rabbit for the most part. You know, they reproduce, they breed like rabbits, they're, you can eat them. Um, so but the problem is rabbit fur or hair fur um, does not felt very well. And so this is when the, the whole mercury situation started to happen because they realized that by brushing the fur with mercury, um, it turned, it changed the chemical composition. Um, and it was uh, mercury and nitric acid, which is also pretty nasty. Um, and you would just brush this onto the pelt and it would turn it orange, actually. It was called carroting, which I think is quite funny in relation to rabbits, but it was uh, carroting. In French, it was called secretage because the ingredients were a secret. Um, mm -hmm. So this is one of the reasons it, it isn't that well known. It was a process that was kind of kept secret and kept within the, the hatting industry. And so, yeah, that would transform the, the fur and allow you to, to felt it. But as you can imagine, the fur is just imbued with this horribly toxic quicksilver um and you know to make a hat you one of the steps for example is is a called a planking kettle you immerse it in to shrink the felt in this hot water and just the vapor coming off of that kettle you would be inhaling it and it would land on roofs it would go into water supplies it would poison the local um the, all of the local soil and water and for a long long time right i mean it, it, the mercury is still there in places where they were it centers. is. It's, you know, it still is released into Long Island Sound from Danbury in Connecticut, which was a, a fur felt uh, hat making kind of area in Connecticut. And yeah, they, they, I mean, the hats themselves are still toxic. So. And, 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 Brit and British hatters, am I right in saying British hats, English hatters were using mercury still in the late 1960s? Yes, it was never banned. <laughs> it was Incredible. just simply, you know, they tried to invent ways to circumvent vented and better solutions but it was just the cheapest and the most efficient way to create um headgear for men again it's a bit like the tutus people knew that something was wrong they because hatters went mad i mean is that basically the is that too simplistic or is that really what happened? I mean, they had a reputation, certainly, um, for, you know, heavy drinking and kind of eccentric behavior, I think. Hanging out with hairs at tea parties and all that <laughs> Exactly. Kind of Hanging out with the hairs that would have been turned into hats, actually, yeah. thinking about it. Of course. But, um, yes, I hadn't thought of that. I know. And actually, um, the other little side note, sidebar here, was that I realized the magic trick, the kind of epitome of magic of pulling the hair out of the, or the rabbit out of the hat, that was actually a 19th century trick. Joke. And in fact, oh, the joke right. was that, you know, the dead rabbit was, he was reanimating it and bringing it magically oh, back course. to life, which I, when I realized that I was like, oh my God, how did I not know? But, um, but of course that's magic. I think that's a perfect note on which to have a break. 
Um, and when we come back, um, we'll look at another cheery aspect of fashion, which is its fondness for um, poisons other than mercury, uh, chiefly used as dyes, cosmetics and so on. So um, lots of fun to come. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. In the 1827 dialogue between fashion and death by the Italian romantic poet Giacomo Lepardi, he has a personification of fashion who claims that she is death's sister. She says she's proudly playing many deadly games, crippling people with tight shoes, cutting off their breath and making their eyes pop out because of their tight corsets. Now, we've talked about corsets. We've talked about shoes. What we haven't talked about, though, um, are colours. And I guess... The color green is a good place to start. Basically, I mean, this is a very, very simplistic way of putting it, but in the 19th century, green will probably kill you. I mean, green hats, green fabrics, if you work in a factory using green dye. And and Alison, why? Who is wearing green? Yes, who is wearing green? I am wearing (laughs) my emerald green dress. Boldly. Again. (laughs) What's what's going on there? Why Why will that kill you? Oh, and and just as a preface, I would have been the person dying of emerald green because, as you can tell from the dress I'm wearing today, I'm not the radio listeners, but um, but green is my favorite color. So, <laughs> um, but yes, in the 19th century, I mean, if we think about it um, in a broader perspective, it was a period that saw so much urbanization and industrialization, and you can imagine kind of people coming in from a green countryside and entering an urban environment where it was green might have been a lot harder to come by, and so. Um, Green was sought after, I suppose, um, but it was also technically one of the hardest colors to achieve um, because 
historically, and now I've taken up natural dyeing during the uh, pandemic. So as a hobby, I now know that green is very difficult to create um, because you really do have to have two dye baths. You have to have a yellow, which is easy to find, but you also need a blue, which would come from like woad or imported indigo. And the shade that was created by um, Sheila, who was a Pomeranian chemist in 1770s, was only achievable through chemistry. It was not like kind of a new form of chemistry. Um, and, you know, green had all sorts of other problems. Like you would have a green outfit, but and it might look nice in daylight, but it would look gray um, either on the stage or at night. So you didn't want a green gown because it would kind of not be very colorful um, in most lighting situations that you'd want to be splendid in. This new green that Sheila created was um, had many different names, but it was created using arsenic trioxide and copper, which <laughs> had long been used in the making oh, of dear. greens. But um, the arsenic was, I think, somewhat new. Um, and he managed, and it, and it was kind of improved, and they added um, different, made different formula. And then by the 1820s or so, it was being used for so many consumer goods. It was being used for paper, wallpaper, um, paint, you know, as a pigment, um, toys, candies, you know, just by the Victorian period, it was everywhere. <laughs> and it always has an arsenic in it, just to, just to be clear. The arsenic no, no. <laughs> is, a, but the arsenic is a key ingredient, isn't it? That people are using a yes. lot. So, is there? Have I got this right? That a ball gown would have enough arsenic to kill two hundred people? Well, I mean, if you think about it, this is exactly the same period of the crinoline. So, um, you know, a ball gown would be many, many layers of different fabrics, including one called tarlatan, which, uh, you know, was also used for tutus, um, not green. <laughs> um, but it was kind of a rough weave and they would just have the pigment would kind of dust off of it. You know, you'd have yards and yards of this bright green fabric and the pigment wasn't that solidly attached sometimes. So a dress like that, Maybe, potentially, they certainly, um, people who are trying to kind of argue that this was harming the flower makers and dressmakers and the people who dyed the fabric were getting the foremost, you know, analytical chemists in the world and forensic chemist Hoffman, uh, who is also a dye chemist, to test these things and to, to use these um, uh, kind of techniques that had been developed for arsenic poisoning um, trials, the Reich test and the Marsh test to test textiles and, and fabrics. And they were, that's the results that those were the results that they came up with. So I, I don't know if it was exaggerated, but it's quite possible. There was a lot of arsenic. Because <laughs> Alison, I mean, again, and this is a theme running throughout this discussion, people knew that these dresses were potentially dangerous. So you have... It, it, a joke in punch and the jokes in punch are never really, I mean, they never seem particularly funny to us, but this seems positively, I mean, the opposite of funny. We think a man would be as green as the dress of his fair partner. If he either waltzed or polked with a lady in shields green. In fact, girls in these green dresses ought to be marked dangerous or to have beware of poison embroidered in red letters right across the back. I mean, it's a making it as a joke, but that seems to be saying, yeah, we know, <laughs> you know these, oh, no, these dresses even, um... are absolutely lethal. Advice columns for women saying, you know, bring some ammonia in your smelling salts bottle if you want to see if the green has arsenic. So if you pour the ammonia on it, um, it will turn blue because of the copper. And that's probably arsenical. So don't buy that one. So, you know, it was, there was consumer advice on. But how people to surely aren't going things. into like, you know, Vic, late Victorian department stores or something armed with <laughs> pouring chemicals. Pouring over ammonia <laughs> no, <laughs> although we did. Tried in the lab with some lemon scented ammonia and it worked. It didn't turn blue. We were playing with the arsenic. <laughs> in the long run, this, this does kind of start to percolate through. And, and you say, is that, am I right that this is why Coco Chanel 
hated green. She never used yes. green and was... <laughs> Yes, I think it, these I've heard since many stories of, you know, people entering sort of the Danish theater wardrobe department and, you know, being warned off using green thread. And this is in the 20th century, so or 21st century even. So there are lots of suspicions still that and Chanel being one of them, the House of Chanel, uh, Chanel thought it was an unlucky color, but she was trained as a milliner and as a seamstress in her teachers would have probably encountered um, encountered arsenical greens in the course of their work because it was especially bad for artificial flowers and leaves in particular um, that mm. that were powdered with this green pigment to make them, you know, seemingly lifelike, but very harmful. And I, I also wrote an article called Tainted Love on Oscar Wilde's Green Carnation. Oh, very good title. Um, which is, uh, yeah. yeah, I love titles. <laughs> um, but on the green carnation was, was a, a symbol of, of homosexuality because a kind of coded symbol because it was an artificial green, right? You could, and, you know, a lot of people refer to them as dipped in arsenic and yeah, it's complicated, but people hadn't um, made that connection. So just a, 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 a last point about arsenic, Alison. Mm -hmm. um, and a theme that I think runs through your book and, and, and through this story, the people who are most at risk are often the people who are making these things, aren't they? A bit with the hat, like with the hatters. So yes. these people who are working with arsenic, I mean, they have the kind of dust on their hands or whatever, or they have. So, so do you think there, there is a sort of silent death toll? of people who were of oh, dressmakers and textile workers and so on. Definitely. I mean, the conditions of that kind of work were, were horrific to start with. But if you were working in particularly dangerous corners of it, including, you know, hatting or uh, artificial flower makers in particular were very much exposed um, to to these. I, I think a lot of them would have, you know, had, well, a lot of them did had die early deaths, um, had chronic illnesses. Um, and in fact, I think what's interesting as a contrast is that, you know, because the consumers weren't harmed in the case of hats, you know, men were not aware that their hats had mercury and they had linings. And so they were kind of protected um, from this. And if you were a working class man, you were sort of expected to take on the risks of many dangerous jobs, whereas the young girls and women were often uh, working as artificial flower makers. It was very ill paid. Um, and so there was an idea, not only was you know, were the wearers getting harmed? Like people would wear green gloves to the ball gown and then they'd get a rash or they'd, um, their wreath would powder, you know, onto their shoulders, their hair wreath out of artificial flowers and they'd get, a again, a rash. So they called the doctor. Um, and the same doctors were seeing the flower girls coming into their hospitals for the poor, you know, the next day. And so they were making that connection between the, the fashionable green and the workers who made it as well and kind of trying to call it out because women, you know, obviously needed more protection. And it was also much more visible, right? Everybody could kind of look for these greens. So, so Alison, we actually, we have a question on this mm. theme from Lauren MGM on the Discord. Um, who, who asks about unions and to what extent were our garment worker unions effective improving worker and consumer safety? Um, so does, do, do unions, do the rise of unions play a part as well? It's not just kind of doctors pointing out that these are dangerous. Is it actual, you know, it's, it's, it's workers organizing together and saying, you know, this is just intolerable. Definitely. I mean, I found that much more in the French literature, um, which is a, an interesting case in, in contrast, because, um, you know, even as early as the 18, I, I, one of the things I found fascinating was, you know, in the 1850s, when Baudelaire's writing Les Fleurs du Mal, or The Flowers of Evil, which seems all that more apt, the workers are actually going to protest at the police prefecture about the danger of their conditions. Um, and, you know, kind of it gets, it does get arsenic gets um, banned in France and in Scandinavia and in Germany. 
um, because it's considered so hazardous. But in the UK, um, I mean, certainly unions are on the rise and do change conditions, you know, as of the late 19th century and early 20th century in garment industries, I would say. I mean, not that there weren't strikes before and unions, but in terms of the UK, arsenic was such an important um, good. And they actually, after Matilda Scheurer, who was a 19-year-old um, flower maker who died of arsenic poisoning from working with um with Emerald Green. After she died, there was a huge uh, public outcry and even a parliamentary inquiry. Um, and they, you know, at the end of it, much to my shock, they they conducted a huge, you know, investigation. And they said, well, you know, really, only one person has died. This is, you know, too important to industry. We can't actually ban it. Um, and so it did go out of fashion because it was, you know, there were kind of uh, ladies, the Ladies Sanitary Association was, you know, again, getting these chemists to prove scientifically um, about that the, these things were, you know, toxic and advocating um, against it. But there weren't, it wasn't um, the workers themselves, as far as I know, in the artificial flower industry, um, didn't themselves in the UK uh, protest or unionize. Um, so, uh, although, you know, they, I, I did find that eventually after her death, they the particular flower shop she worked in, which was near the British Library where I was researching, um, did move to more spacious and airy uh, premises. So there were slow there was slow change, but um, but you know again a lot of these girls were minors as well. They didn't have any political power. Um, mm. So and it's and it's a lot kind of ongoing thing, isn't it? Because you have the extraordinary story about the um, uh, the the belt sold by Assos, uh, inspired by Alexander McQueen. Uh, which was studded and the studs had cobalt 60 in uh, and um, they were radioactive <laughs> and um, therefore give you a radioactivity, you know, radioactive poisoning. It's kind of like you, a superhero's if, belt. If worn more belt. than 500 hours. So, so it's a kind of ongoing thing. And another, on, I mean, really, I think this, the, the, the kind of the, the last, and in a way, perhaps again, one, perhaps up there with foot binding is one of the most famous examples of dangerous fashion is the makeup that Elizabeth I wore but again, the idea of, of poisons in cosmetics is one that runs right the way through into the present day as well. The, the, so the cosmetics that Elizabeth I wears, is, is it true that it kind of basically, I mean, kind of poisoned her face? As far as we know, it it is. <laughs> uh, and as far as I've been able to to see, I mean, and she was certainly not the only one. I mean, having a white complexion, I mean, there are so many you know, racial dimensions to that, I think, whitening your skin. But and class it's still as well, issue. right? I mean, it's a class one. Oh, definitely. You would, suntans didn't become fashionable until the 20s and 30s. So uh, 1920s and 30s. So definitely until then you wanted um, to have, if you were uh, European or North American, uh, you know, you wanted to have the, the lightest skin possible. That was, uh, you know, a sign that, again, you weren't just like the con uh, constricting and constraining fashions, you weren't out in the fields, you know, harvesting things and being exposed to the sun. And you have it, you have it in, so in India as well, there's, there's kind of lightning powders that, that again, are kind of very dangerous. And they're still so exactly, day, they, some of them also contain mercury. I mean, yes, there's a there's still toxic products used in a lot of these um, uh, cosmetic products, actually, and there's still an emphasis on, on whitening and lightening, which is very harmful. Um, so many of these case studies have still have, you know, continue to have resonance, I think, today. But um, but yes, I mean, having if you think about lead, the properties of lead, I mean, that's why lead was in paint, right? So lead white, um, because it creates a kind of opaque surface that reflects light as well, right? And so as an ingredient, um, it gives you this desired, it, it masks things um, and makes them look light optically. Um, and that's why it was such a 
common. Ing- I mean, it was easy, easily available. So it was, um, and it wasn't too expensive. So, you know, that was one of the reasons why lead figured in cosmetics. I was still finding in the 19th century um, pearl white skin creams that caused um, hand drop. And like it was called lead palsy, I believe, um, in terms of, you know, women putting it on their skins and, and not being able to move their hands. Um, so there were still products, you know, I mean, historically later on that, that, uh, that contained this, um, these contained lead and continue to today. Yes, because you have this um, amazing figure that a, a, 20, a 2011 study by the FDA, so that's in America, found lead in all 400 of the lipsticks they tested. I know, I have to admit, after that, I brought some of my lipsticks to be tested in our physics lab just to see and, um, and what worked was the, with a friend. And what happened? Um, well, interestingly, yes, they were because I kind of buy oh, natural brands. Um, but my, I had my then young son come in with his he'd gone to circus camp and he had clown makeup and that did Ooh. have lead in it oh really so, that's um, interesting so not so not so funny yeah <laughs> um but uh but and and in fact i as i investigated more and worked with my partner eric da silva in physics um we realized that lead is part of the pigments that color it like it's a natural if you like it's a natural ingredient so it's not required to be listed uh, it's kind of considered a contaminant, not uh, something you have to list on the label. So it's really quite impossible to know. Um, but what's interesting, too, is the FDA also considers it something topical. In other words, um, something you only put on the outside of your skin. But of course, as we all know, or anyone who's ever worn makeup knows, we are eating things and we are, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the lipstick gets ingested. Um, and, you know, our skin is only a fine barrier. So um, anything that's considered adornment is not protected as well as anything that's considered, you know, medical or anything like that. So there's still kind of a bias against that. And there still is lead in some cosmetics. I mean, it's not very well regulated. <laughs> well, I, I, I hope that this... Um... So that's actually a chilling thought, isn't it? That uh, we could do this podcast in a hundred... People who are doing this podcast in a hundred years and they'd be talking about us. Well, what they'd be talking about, Botox and... Well, they would. I mean, these people whose kind of bottoms explode and stuff because they've... I mean, that's an example of killer fashion, isn't it? I mean, people, I mean, that's like the foot binding thing, but also with chemicals. Right. Again, take take a second thought when we look at our contemporary society and the things that we, we do or the new, t- I mean, I always think when we, we were talking about kind of comfort of fashion now, it may be much more comfortable for the wearer. Um, but it's still, you know, our blue jeans are often right. being sandblasted and causing silicosis in the lungs of the workers blasting it with beach sand. Um, or, you know, we may have comfortable shoes, like we may love our trainers, but they're often put together using adhesives that are neurotoxic for the workers doing that. Yeah. And also so, who's, so, who's making your trainers and where? So we, exactly. Mean, yeah. Are they yeah. comfortable? <laughs> so, so, so there is, there's a question from Nathan Hogg, friend of the show. Um, are the true fashion victims the many sweatshop workers? Definitely. As someone who teaches fashion students, I felt that it was really important. Um, and as a historian, I felt it was really important to say, you know, these labor and, uh, you know, environmental and health problems that we, you know, that are still going on in and, and often unseen um, to those of us in the global north, um, they're still happening. They're just, we see them less in the, in the 19th century, these problems were much, you know, as when London and Manchester and Paris were big centers for the production of fashion, the medical establishment was seeing what was happening. And they were often trying to kind of uh, raise awareness uh, of these problems, whereas now, you know, we're aware of them, but they, they're still happening. And they're happening on a, a global scale. So yes, the sweatshop, yeah. I mean, it's a long history, and it's still yeah. going on. Brilliantly explicated in your book, 
uh, fashion victims. And you said you love titles. I mean, just looking at the chapter titles, uh, you've got uh, toxic techniques, mercurial hats, poisonous pigments, arsenical greens, entangled and strangled, caught in the machine, inflammatory fabrics, flaming tutus and combustible crinolines and that kind of, and uh, as I say, just magnificently illustrated as well. It's an incredibly fascinating book. Thank you so much for coming on. Tom, um, you should, uh, your daughter should choose more of our topics. <laughs> That's <laughs> well, the great she, lesson of this podcast. She, she, Maybe I'll get uh, to come back with my crime book. <laughs> yeah, we would, we would love you to come back with your crime book. When, when, so you don't know yet when it's going to be out. Maybe uh, give us a sneak preview. Um, I'll let you know the next two great. or three years. <laughs> yes. That'd be great. But my no. t- titles are still shot and stabbed and struck. So there we are. <laughs> and stained. Okay, so. well, hopefully the podcast will still be running in time for you to come and do that. Alison, thanks so much. Your book, Fashion Victims. Thank you. Rush out and buy it, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Listener.